Hallelujah. How should I know? What do you think I am? A dictionary? Tommy, stop that. Stop it. Janie, haven't you learned that silly tune yet? You play it over and over again. Now stop it. Stop it. Sorry, Mary. Janie, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I... You go on and practice. Pete, I owe you an apology, too. I'm sorry. What do you want to know? Nothing, Daddy. What's the matter with everybody? Janie, go on. I told you to practice. Now go on, play. Oh, Daddy. <laughs> George, why must you torture the children? Why don't you... For many of us, that scene from It's a Wonderful Life where George Bailey loses it after the end of a hard day and he storms out of his house after yelling at his family. For many of us, that's what we remember when we think of Christmas Eve, right? We've, we've had those bad experiences and uh, this, this Christmas season we're looking at uh, dysfunctional family Christmas. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but if you know the rest of the story of It's a Wonderful Life, remember George Bailey is a man who, even though he's had this bad experience, he's had a bad day, at the end of the movie he gets a second chance, doesn't he? Isn't it a great thing when you get to the end of the movie and you see that, that he's gotten a second chance? And isn't that what we all long for, whether you call it a do-over, a second chance, a clean slate, whatever you call it, I think deep down every single one of us longs for a fresh start, a second chance. And that's really what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? I mean, when we read from Isaiah 53 as the, the young adults lit the, the Advent candle here, it says, we all went astray like sheep. We've all turned from our own way. And the Lord has punished him, that is Jesus Christ, for the iniquity of us all. That is what we celebrate at Christmas, that through that sacrifice, through Christ's punishment on our behalf, we get a second chance. All of us want a second chance. And this morning, we're going to look at a story in Joshua chapter 2 that continues to show a woman who's gotten a second chance. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to many of us, but as we're talking about the dysfunctional family Christmas, this, this Christmas season, we're looking at family members from Jesus' own family, right? We said that even the Son of God has black sheep in his family, right? How many of us have black sheep in our family? Come on. If you don't raise your hand, that means you are the black sheep in your family. Uh, but we all have that cousin, that uncle, that aunt, that maybe parent or brother or sister that kind of drives us crazy. Maybe sometimes we're the instigator in that. And the holidays are a difficult time to get through. Instead of being a celebration, it becomes a, a source of anxiety and stress. And so my hope is that as we look at these stories that it would give us some hope this holiday season as we see these different people that God uses in mighty and powerful ways in spite of their brokenness. In fact, as we just sang, your love never fails, it never gives up. I was thinking through my week in all the ways that I'd failed God. All the ways that I let him down, the, the sin that I have in my life, the things that I had done this morning, uh, last night, Monday morning, all the things, the ways that I had just failed God, and yet he still chooses to use me in mighty and powerful ways as I lead my families and, and to even get up here and to be able to stand up here knowing that my sin is, is paid for, that I have a second chance. 
And so we're going to look at this story this week from Joshua chapter 2. Last week, we began with a story back in Genesis. And really, we kind of started talking about Abraham and the promise that was made to Abraham. You see, back in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and through you, all, all people I'm going to bless through you. And so Abraham passes, uh, has that promise passed down to Isaac, to Jacob, and then finally uh, we end up in, with the, all of Israel in Egypt, in captivity. It's kind of how Genesis ends. And then along the scene comes Moses, and Moses comes to deliver the people. After 400 years in slavery, Moses leads the people out. They walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then they, because of their disobedience, they spend 40 years wandering in the desert. And finally, now the day has come for Israel to take possession of the land that God promised them over 400 years before. And the time has come. They're on the east side of the Jordan. They're there. About two million of them are gathered. And they're ready to cross over. And Joshua is now leading the nation. And this is the story that we find in Joshua chapter 2. This is what we read. Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove saying, go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left, and they came to the house of a woman, a prostitute named Rahab, and stayed there. Now, I know what you're thinking. Holy moly, Chuck. Last week with Genesis 38 and the mess that was in that passage, and now we're talking about a prostitute this morning. This is Christmas time. It shouldn't be PG-13. It should be kid-friendly. Right? What's going on? But I promise this morning that's as bad as it gets. All right? Right there. That's as bad as it gets. So basically, we have all of Israel on the east side of the Jordan, and Joshua says, you know what, Um, when Moses brought us to the promised land, the first time he sent spies in, we need to have a a developed plan, so I want you to go and check out Jericho. That's going to be the first city we come to. Go and check it out. Tell us what we're up against so we can develop a battle strategy. And so the spies go in, and they come to the house of a prostitute. Now, what we know about these spies, we don't know their names. They're going to go unnamed for the entire story here. And in fact, throughout all of Joshua, these spies, their names aren't given. Uh, but we know that they're going in and that these are probably men of high character and high standing within the nation of Israel. Because these were men, much like Joshua himself, who was a spy, uh, the first time around, Joshua and Caleb were two of the spies that Moses sent in. And they were listened to. They got face to face with Moses. These were people that were of good standing. And now Joshua, one of those spies, is now leading the nation. So we know that these are men of good character. And in fact, we can, we can tell from the text that there's nothing immoral going on here. That their choice to stay at Rahab's house, the prostitute, which is probably operating like a brothel, was actually just a strategic, intelligent, smart choice. I mean, think about it logically. You want to go into town... And you want to stay there for a couple days, and you want to go to a place where nobody's going to ask you questions, and, you know, you kind of want to stay undetected. Where would you go? So it makes sense that they would end up at this brothel, at this prostitute's house. So no one's going to be asking a whole lot of questions. You can come and go as you please. And so that's where they stay. And now this woman, Rahab, is presented with an amazing opportunity. And that's the first thing we we learn about second chances is that whenever we're given a second chance, we're first presented with an opportunity. Look at this opportunity that Rahab's given. The the king of Jericho, Rahab is is given this opportunity. She's, She's a Gentile, first of all. Let's talk about who she is. She's a Gentile. She is completely separate from all the promises that God made to Israel. 
She's left out. She doesn't have the law. She didn't come with them out of Egypt. She didn't get to experience that redemption. She's missed out completely. She's ignorant of the law. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this. Um, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, says this. You'll remember a couple weeks ago when we studied through the book of Ephesians, uh, we came to this passage, and Paul says this. So then remember that at one time you were, you, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by those circumcised, which was done in the flesh. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. That's where she is. That's where all of us were. She's a Gentile. Not only is she a Gentile, she's one of the worst kind of Gentiles that there is. She's an Amorite. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to me and you, but in those days, the Amorites uh, were polytheistic. They worshipped, they were pagans. They worshipped a number of gods. And as a part of their worship to these gods, their worship included child sacrifice. That's the background she's coming from. And on top of that, not only is she a Gentile Amorite, she's a woman, which wasn't highly regarded in that day. And on top of that, she's a prostitute. Do you see the opportunity here? The opportunity for this woman who's got a sordid past to come face to face with two men who are from God's chosen nation. She has an opportunity to come face to face to have an, uh, an interaction with the God of the universe. That's the opportunity. That's the opportunity that we see here. What's she going to do? What do you think she does? Look with me in verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelite men have come here to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they've come to investigate the entire land. So now that she's got the opportunity, now Rahab is faced with a choice. She's faced with a choice. Do I obey the king and bring the men out? We don't know how they were found out. We don't know who blew their cover, but their cover is blown, and the king is looking for them. You can imagine being an Amorite and seeing two million Israelites on the other side of the river knowing that this is the same group of people that defeated the Egyptians, essentially, through the power of God. They crossed through the Red Sea with a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left. They passed through on dry ground. Not only that, but they've recently just kind of whooped up on some of the other Amorite kings and completely destroyed them. So you can imagine that there's a little bit of anxiety going on here. And the king hears that these two men from Israel have come and he sends to Rahab's house because he heard that they were there. Now she's faced with a choice. She's faced with a choice. Do I, do I hand them over? Do I do what, what I know my country needs me to do? Or do I help these two men out? These two men from God's chosen nation. And it's at this point that she's faced with the choice. And let me tell you that I think the biggest obstacle that we face when we're presented with a second chance is this right here, the choice. Because the biggest enemy that we have to embracing a second chance is this, nostalgia. When we look back at the rest of our life and we say, this is just the way it's always been. I've always lived this way. It's comfortable for me. I don't know anything different. This new second chance, that new life could be scary. I don't know what lies on the other side, but I do know what lies over here. It's the fear of the unknown. I mean, think about the nation of Israel. When they were wandering in the desert, do you remember what they said about Egypt? Oh, remember all the food that we had. Remember the the houses that we lived in. Wasn't it great being in Egypt? 
They didn't talk about, hey, remember when we got beat by the Egyptians? We were whipped as slaves when they made us make bricks without straw? Wasn't that awesome? No, they focused on the positive. They were nostalgic. They could only see the good. And that's the biggest challenge that we face. And now Rahab is faced with that same decision. She has this choice. What is she going to do? And we find out in verse 4 that she's already made her decision. Look at verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, yes, the men did come to me. But I didn't know where they were from. Lie number one. Look at this. And at nightfall, when the gate was about to close, the men went out. Lie number two. And I don't know where they're going. Lie number three. Watch this. It gets even worse. Chase after them quickly, and you may catch up with them. So not only is she committing treason here, but she's got to pile on top of that and say, hey, if you hurry, you might catch them. She's lying through her teeth. You think she's ever lied to cover up for some men before? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's probably done this a time or two. It just comes naturally for her. Now, I, I know some of you are thinking, oh, man, what's going on here? She's lying. What do we do with the lie? Is it a righteous lie? Honestly, I don't want to get into that. Uh, if you want to read more about that, there's plenty that's been written on that by men that, and women that are much smarter than I am. Uh, you can go out and read on that. Here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. I know that Rahab is commended for her faith in this action. She is commended for her faith. In fact, if you go to Hebrews 11, we have the, it's kind of the hall of fame, the hall of faith. And we read about people like Abraham and Sarah who had great faith. And we read that Rahab is listed among them as one of the the heroes of scripture, the heroes of faith. And so I don't know what we do with this lie, but, but I do know that she's commended for her faith. Besides that, what was she supposed to say? Oh yeah, I got him up on the roof. Why don't you guys come on in? You'll kill him. It'll be fun to watch. What's she supposed to say? She values life. She's protecting their life. Again, I don't know what to do with it. All I know is that Rahab is commended for her faith. This is the act of faith. We've got the opportunity. We've got the choice. And now she's got to act on her faith. And she does. In a mighty and powerful way. Now, some of you are thinking, come on, Chuck. Get real. Get real. This woman is only out to save her own skin. She knows what's on the other side of the Jordan. She knows what's coming. She knows that her people are about to be obliterated. And all she wants to do is save her own life. That's not the case at all. Let's keep going in verse 6. It says this, But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stacks of flax where she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them all night long to the road to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as they led led to pursue them, the gate was shut. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and the territory of you, of you has fallen on us, and every one of our lives in the land, everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. What does she say here? What is she saying here? She says that we have heard about the Lord. She begins talking about the object of her faith. The Lord, that word Lord that she uses there is the personal name for God, Yahweh, which is the name for God that the Israelites would have called him. This woman knows the Lord. Not just God, not just some generic God, not just some pagan God. She knows the Lord, Yahweh. 
She says, look, I, I know the Lord has given all of this land to you. And I know that there's nothing we can do to stop you. Now, again, you're probably thinking, look, uh, I don't know what's going on here. You know, these men are up on the roof. Can you imagine being one of those men? Can you imagine being up on that roof hearing what's taking place downstairs? And you can't be like, whoa, 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 Rahab, what are you doing here? Um, We don't know what you're going to ask of us, but I don't know that we're willing to make that commitment because we're basically going to owe our lives to you after this. What's her plan? You're up there thinking, maybe she's going to come out at the ninth hour and drag us out like she caught us and get some financial benefit and recognition from the, from the king that she's the big hero of the day. Or maybe when Israel comes and attacks, she's going to drag us out and use us to barter for her own life. They have no idea what's going on up there. They have no idea. But what we see is that now she's told them, she says, look, here's the deal. My faith is in the Lord. I know the Lord. I know the Lord, your God, the one true God. I know him. She says, uh, using the personal name of God, she says, we heard about all that happened. Let's continue reading. She says, for we have heard how, you, how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea. And when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings, how you completely destroyed them across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart. And everyone's courage failed because people swear uh, because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven on earth and below. Uh, Heaven above and on earth below. She acknowledges that their God is the one true God. Now this is a big deal because this is committing treason against her king. Not only is it treason against her king, but this is also committing blasphemy against everything that she's ever known. She has just now completely turned her back on everything she's, she's known. And she's making a bold proclamation of faith here. Demonstrating that the object of her faith is God himself. You see, the, the pagans, the Amorites, they worshipped a number of gods. And each of those little gods had dominion over a certain area. Maybe it was the crops. Maybe they had a god that had dominion over the rain. And another one who had dominion over the sun. But when she says that Yahweh, God, the Lord God, has dominion over heaven above and earth below, she's saying he's over all of it. She recognizes that he is the God who created and sustains the whole universe. Now you're one of these Israelite spies. What are you supposed to do with this? Here's a woman who stands opposed to everything that you have been taught. She stands opposed to every way of life that you have ever lived. Yet now she's claiming, I worship the same God you worship. My faith is in the same God that you worship. You're one of those spies. What do you do now? What do you do now? Let's see what happens next. She says in verse 12, Now please swear to me by the Lord, that is Yahweh again, that you will also show kindness to my family because I showed kindness to you. Now some of you are thinking, oh, oh, I knew it. I knew it. She's only looking out for her own self. She's only looking out for her own good. But look again. What does she ask for? Does she ask for herself? No, she asks for her family. She says, save my family. Look, I get it. I'm I'm a Gentile. I'm an Amorite. I'm a prostitute. I get it. I probably am not worth much to you, but think about my family. Think about my family. And so she asks for their lives, and it goes on 
It says, uh, give me a sure sign that you will spare their lives of my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. Save us from death. The man answered, we will give our lives for yours. If you do not report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us this land. Now think about that for a minute. You're the spies. You've got the whole nation of Israel behind you. This is just some prostitute, Gentile, Amorite woman. You don't owe her anything. Is that the deal that you're going to make? Our lives for your lives? Now remember, these men are men of standing. They are probably powerful, formidable warriors. And this is the exchange that you make? But here's the the deal, that not only do we have to have an opportunity, not only do second chances involve uh, uh, opportunity, a choice, an act of faith, and an object of our faith, Second chances involve an exchange. There's a transaction, an exchange that has to take place. Think about it. Think about a financial do-over. Let's say you're, you're going to get a fresh start in your finances. Maybe someone comes down and plops down the money to pay off your bills. There's an exchange that takes place. You want to start a new job. You've got you've to get a fresh start in your work. You've got to leave the old place and go to the new place. There's got to be an exchange made. You want a spiritual do-over. Here's what you need to realize. That exchange has already been made when Jesus Christ laid down on the cross and died for you and me. The exchange has been made. It's done. It's completed. We don't have to worry about it. And here's what we see with, with Rahab is that she understands that in this exchange that it's going to require help from the outside. She can't do it herself. And the same is true for us, that we can't pull ourselves up by the spiritual bootstraps. That, that exchange has to come from the outside. There's nothing that we can do ourselves to earn that exchange. It comes from God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we come to the, the best part of the story. The spies go back. They go back to Joshua and they start reporting everything that happened. Imagine you're Joshua. How do you like the first part of that story? Hey, so we uh, stopped at this brothel. You what? You stayed where? (laughs) Come on, guys. No, 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 Joshua. It's not what you think. And they tell Joshua everything that they did. And they they tell him about the deal that they made, which was this. He says, uh, the men answered her, we will give our lives for you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. Go to the hill country so that the men who pursue you won't find you, she said. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return. Afterward, go on your way. And she says this, the men said to her, We will be free from this oath you have made us swear, unless when we enter the land, you tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and sisters, and all your father's family into your house. If anyone goes outside the doors of your house, his blood will be on his own head, and we will be innocent. But if anyone with you is uh, with you in the house should be harmed, his blood will be on our heads. And if you report our mission, we are free from this oath that you made us swear. Let it be as you say. She replied and sent them away. So she says, look, I'm asking for mercy for, for my family. And they say, we're going to make that deal. You've helped us, now we're going to help you. And here's, here's what we need you to do. We need you to put this red cord in your window so that when we come in, we'll know that this house is protected. You remind you, 
of another time when something red protected the people of Israel, like Passover. So she, they say, hang this out of the window, and, and if someone from your family goes outside, they're outside when all this stuff goes down, that's on them. That's not on us, that's on them. We have no way of knowing. But anyone inside the house, if anything happens to them, that's on us. We'll pay the price. We'll pay the price. And they give him her word, and they give her a sign. And they go back to Joshua, and they tell him, and they're telling him this story, and he says, okay, let it be so. And then we get to Joshua chapter 6. Man, this is one of the... the most famous stories in all of scripture that we have here in Joshua chapter 6. And the, all of Israel has now crossed over the Jordan. They've come to Jericho. And they're getting ready to go. And God says, here's, here's the battle plan. You guys sent spies to find out the battle plan. Don't worry about it. I've got it covered. Here's what I want you to do. March around the city once every day for six days. And on the seventh day, march around it seven times. And then blow the horn and yell. And I'll take care of the rest. And so they do that. They start marching around the city. Now imagine that you're in Rahab's family and you're holed up in her house with this little red cord hanging around and you start seeing people march around the city and you're like, oh, here it comes. Day one, here it comes. Here it comes. And nothing. Day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, same thing. And you're in there and you're just kind of shaking in your sandals. You don't know what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and how it's going to go down. And nothing for six days. And finally on that seventh day, you see them march one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times, and you hear the loudest shout and horn blow that you have ever heard in your life, and all of the walls around you come falling down. Remember, her house is built into the side of the wall of the city. The entire wall comes down except for one house, Rahab's. Rahab's. Now, can you imagine, once all the people storm the city, they're in, there's fighting going on, they can hear it outside, and they're like, is this red cord going to be enough? Maybe we should get on the roof, paint the whole house red, and say, hey, it's us! We're with Rahab, don't kill us! Like, let's paint the whole thing red, let's all wear red, let's just dye ourselves red. They can hear the stuff going down out there. I know that it's not good. And this is what happens. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 6. Starting in verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who scouted the land, Go to the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of there and all who are with her, just as you promised her. So the young men who had scouted the land went and brought Rahab from her fathers and mothers and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. Here it comes. She's been spared. She's had the opportunity. She's made her choice. She's acted on her faith. We've seen the object of her faith. We saw that there was an exchange that took place, and now she gets the fresh start. She gets the fresh start. She gets grafted in to the people of Israel. Not only that, listen to this. Verse 25, however, Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, her father's household, and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho. And she lives to Israel, in Israel to this day. To this day. She's got a second chance. Not only that, but if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to see this. We're going to see that she got a completely fresh start, unlike any other that we could ever possibly imagine. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this. It says, 
the historical record of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father, father Jacob, Jacob, father Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We talked about her last week. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nishan, Nishan fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Here we have this woman who's been given a second chance. She had an awful past. She had an awful life prior to her encounter with these two men from Israel, with the God of Israel. And she's given a second chance. In fact, she's given such a great second chance that she's now included in the family of Jesus. The cool thing about this is I love that her son, Boaz, if you're familiar with the story of Ruth, you know that he goes on to be a man of upstanding character and he becomes another hero of the faith. Like Her life has completely changed because she's embraced this second chance. And as we think about second chances this morning, I just, uh, I want us to think about a couple things. And that's this, that second chances remind us that everyone can participate. Everyone has the opportunity to participate in a second chance. There's, there's nothing that we can't do that can keep us from participating in the second chance that God offers to us. We've seen it, that God offers this opportunity to participate to everyone we just have to understand that we're going to see the opportunity and we have to make that choice. We have to choose to respond in faith. That's the act of faith. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate this Christmas season, not because he came as a baby boy, but because he grew up to be a man who would die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. That's the exchange. And when we, through faith, have that exchange take place in our lives, we get a fresh start. We get a fresh start. Now, some of you are here and saying, look, I've already made that choice, so you're not offering anything to me. But here's what you have to understand is that every day is an opportunity for you to choose whether or not you're going to follow out and live out that fresh start. Every day is another opportunity, another choice, another act of faith. There's only one that you make to be saved to experience eternal life, but every day after that, you have to choose, am I going to follow Jesus Christ or am I going to go my own way? Am I going to go back to my old ways and settle in nostalgia? The next thing we see is that this, there's no way that this happens on our own, right? There's no way that this happens on our own. Go back with me to Ephesians chapter 2. It's going to be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there, but remember a couple weeks ago we talked about this, and here's what Paul says about us. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirits now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We were by nature children under wrath as others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in our trespasses, you were saved by grace. We can't do it on our own. There is no amount of good works that you can do. There is no amount of money that you can give. There is no amount of church services that you can attend that can make you right with God. That comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. 
That comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've already made that decision, then you understand more than anyone that to live out that faith day by day doesn't happen on your own. It takes outside help, the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. The last thing we're going to see is this. We're going to see that we are faced with a radical choice of faith. We have a radical choice of faith. What's your choice? Is this a choice you've already made? If you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I don't get it. I, I'm, I understand that, that I'm not perfect. And you're, you're talking about Jesus and you're telling me that he's given me a fresh start. That's exactly what I'm telling you. But you have to embrace that through faith. Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved. That is unmerited favor. That means you didn't earn it. By grace you are saved through faith. That word faith simply means trust, putting your trust in Jesus Christ, that his death on the cross was sufficient to secure your eternal life with God. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. You can't work for it, you can't buy it, you can't trade it. There's nothing you can do except respond. The gift is presented, the opportunity God is presenting to you through his son, Jesus Christ. My question for you this morning is how will you respond? How will you respond? If you're here and you've already put your trust in Jesus Christ, how are you doing it living out the life of someone who's been given a second chance? How are you doing? If you're here this morning and have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you Don't leave without doing that this morning. In a while, after the offering, our elders are going to be up front. And if you say this morning, man, I want to to experience this second chance. I want to experience that. Come and talk with them. In fact, right now, what I'd like to do is I'd like everyone just to bow their heads. And I want to give you that opportunity right now. If you're here this morning and you say, I want a second chance in my life. I, I understand that I, this is not something I can do on my own. This is not something that, that I can do by myself. That I need Jesus Christ to be the one who provides me that second chance. If that's you this morning, if you would just slip up your hand very quickly that I could see that you're making a decision to follow Jesus Christ. That you're putting your trust in him and him alone. Would you just pray this with me real quick? If that's you this morning, if you say, I'm putting my trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, would you just pray this with me wherever you are? Heavenly Father, God, I know that I don't deserve it because I'm a sinner. I've messed up. But I believe that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to give me a second chance by dying on the cross for my sins, being raised from the dead. And that is what I put my trust in for the forgiveness of my sins. Today, Father, I am trusting in your Son, Jesus Christ, as my Savior. Help me to walk in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.